0: wasn't um wasn't ross a vision of the new south africa not talking about umschlange but umschlange you just nailed everything it was beautiful you blessed me um and maybe some of you just needed to come to church to hear those pronunciations and so you're welcome you can go now because i don't think the rest can live up to the billing i just received uh i was feeling pressure anyway because we're supposed to finish this series which I, as i understand some feedback from you guys i think this has been a really good series a really helpful one and a lot of you are now going to listen to it on podcast on repeat and get fired up and so to end this conversation uh Uh, at a level that it deserves is is pressure enough not only to then be called all sorts of lovely names so um, this sermon ending the giants must fall series um, is called it was about this idea of leaving Egypt behind and you might go but we've been talking about that all along right the Israelites left Egypt and went to the promised land but there's this moment that comes not in the beginning when you're trying to escape from Egypt, not in the middle when you're getting really excited about the promises God has for you, but later on when you probably, if you're anything like all the heroes of faith, are going to come to a point when despite all the amazing things God has done, despite all the distance you've traveled, despite how terrible Egypt seemed at the beginning and how desperate you were to go somewhere else, you're going to get to a point when you want to pack it in, when the idea of going back is going to look more tempting. And on that really inspiring note... I want to prepare you for that moment. Sometimes some of you may have already experienced that experience of of getting to a point where, God, I was chasing you for this thing. I had this big dream. I had this big desire. I was going after your promises. And despite all that you've done, and despite all that I've invested in this, there still comes a point when it seems tempting to turn back. So if you went to Sunday school, if I say, no turning back, you say? Praise the Lord, Lord, no turning back. Well, done to the two of you. The rest of you obviously went to Clue (laughs) 5. No, congratulations on avoiding some of the Sunday school songs. They would have done you no good. Um, but, But there's this moment when turning back is going to seem like a good idea. Now, human beings do an interesting thing. Human beings, when faced with pain or hardship or when they feel insecure about their circumstances, time travel. We don't yet possess the technology to do this properly, but what we use is this incredible faculty that you have, your imagination and your memory. Your memory allows the past to never actually be the past, but to suddenly be the present. You can travel there in your mind, and so we do this. We love when we're under threat, when we're feeling pressure or, or concerned about our circumstances. We love nostalgia, don't we? Others of you might be more of the futuristic types, and so you start painting with your imagination some beautiful picture of the future. When economies are dodgy, and when, when politics look really uncertain, you can see an immediate rise in the... Um, Desire for period dramas and sci-fi movies. I just made that up. But it does sound believable, doesn't it? That, that there's this thing that goes on. When my present feels a little insecure, then I love to go somewhere else. Uh, escapism is what we call it. And you do do this. So nostalgia is that thing of looking back. And it's like we know... Everything was amazing back then. And you measured things in miles, which made every mile more difficult than 1.6Ks because more hardcore people had to travel them. And everyone walked 10 miles barefoot to school and was grateful and well mannered when they got there. And all politicians were noble and trustworthy, and all music was tasteful. We know. And petrol was free, and the chappy cost a ticky, whatever a ticky is. Like, we get it. Like, it was amazing. Thank you. You also didn't have ultrasound and x ray back then. And as, as someone who may at some point need my prostate to be examined, I'm quite stoked that that technology exists right now. And you had dial-up, which we don't have. But regardless, congratulations. I'm sure the old days were amazing. Um, and isn't that kind of what we do? We kind of airbrush out the awkward memories and heighten the wonderful ones. And go, oh, it used to be so great back then. Or we travel forward And we have this sense of longing that borders on the religious. Um, This is what wanderlust is. If I could just travel there, if I could just go to India, then I'd find myself. Then I'd come back with all these great photos. People would invite me to speak at schools. I would be loved and know who I am. It's like, no, that's not really what's going to happen. Or you're expecting, you know, if I could just buy that thing, retail therapy, if I could just have that. Insta envy, if I could just look like that or get my husband to look like that or get a husband. If I could just get my business to that point then everything would be okay then I'd be able to be happy for those other lucky cows when they fall in love <laughs> then, I would, then life would hold no threat for me any longer but see while we're stuck between these two extremes because nostalgia is unhelpful as well nostalgia when you look back and go it was just so wonderful back then subtly what you're saying is that the reason my life sucks right now has nothing to do with me Back then, conditions were perfect. Back then, music was tasteful and politicians were trustworthy and petrol was free. And that was when life was possible to enjoy. But right now, the fact that I hate my life or that I'm not particularly motivated or that I've got some issues going on that I don't enjoy, I've outsourced the blame for that. It's because the world isn't what it used to be. Your memory is just wrong. You're remembering things inaccurately, but it does absolve you of some responsibility. And the futuristic stuff can be dangerous as well. I know everyone likes the idea of, you know, dream about the world you want to live in, design your best life, and then you get like, yeah, I I get that. I understand that it allows you to set goals and take responsibilities. But what if your dreams are wrong as well? In the same way that your memory can be wrong and warped and have rosy tints, what if your dreams are wrong? And I don't mean like morally wrong. I just mean wrong. Like you're dreaming about doing something you're never going to do. No one's going to trust you to be in charge of a nuclear reactor. You failed maths. Stop dreaming that. Like it's just not going to happen or that thing that you're longing for, God is going to make sure you don't get that because He knows how bad it would be for you if you got it. Oh, no, but if I just got that... Or maybe you will get that thing, and then it won't deliver anywhere near the way you thought it might. Worse than your dreams not coming true is your dreams coming true and not being how you hoped. And so there are these twin threats. Your memory and your imagination threaten your enjoyment of life. And yet... God gave them to you. See, one solution might be, well, let me just not live in the past and let me not live in the future. Um, And some of you might not, I feel like you might not have bought into that yet, right? So maybe the pessimistic preacher, you prove me wrong. You go, you have the great holiday with the deep friendships and people that are really meaningful on the way you drop off mosquito nets or something, you do something really valuable. You have this incredible experience, like you prove me wrong and the dream is great. But then it's over and then you come home. Listening to Dido on repeat, I still have sand in my shoes. And now you have nothing to look forward to, and life is still how it was before. So living in this futuristic, it'll be great one day, or it used to be great once upon a time, threaten your enjoyment of today. The solution might be just to live in the present. That's what um, some of the Buddhist philosophy is telling us right now. Just live in the present. Like, just be really present. And people say that word often, and, like over and over, and then it starts to sound quite sort of deep Uh, it's an interesting idea and probably worth talking about more at another point but God gave you your memory not as a curse not as a trick he gave you your memory and he gave you your imagination he gave you this ability to do mental time travel and then he appeals to your memory throughout scripture we see him telling his people remember this remember that build an altar remind yourself of this And he appeals to your imagination. He appealed to the Israelites. I'm going to send you to this place. And then he uses all the sensory language. It's going to be be like a land flowing with milk and honey. Like he's appealing to their ability to create a vivid picture. So your memory and your imagination can hamstring your enjoyment of today. But God gave them to you. There must be a responsible way to use your memory and your imagination. And I've said those words a lot of times now. Because for the rest of the sermon, I want you to be thinking, I probably don't pay enough attention to the way I reminisce and to the the way I fantasize. And I'm going to have to really pay attention to how I use my imagination and my memory if I'm going to get out of this life well, because I can potentially risk so much, right? So that's the idea, that your, your ability to fantasize can sometimes cause you trouble. And essentially what it is when you fantasize, when you create some unreal world, either unreal in the past or unreal in the future, is what you're doing, if I understand it correctly, is you're taking some desire that you have, some appetite. You're sort of simplifying it and exaggerating it, and then you're looking through it as a lens, To your world, I have this unmet need, I have this appetite, I have this thing that I'm longing for. And I now heighten it to the point where if I don't get this need met, I'm not going to be okay. If I don't get this need met, the world is scary to me. I have a right to get this need met, I need it. And then I look through that lens at my past and I filter out everything else that disagrees with it. And I go, yeah, see, I used to get that need met back then. Facebook even proved it, showed me a photo from 10 years ago. I definitely used to get that need met. Or you look to your future through the lens of this one appetite that you have, and you go, if I could just get that, or get that person, then this appetite would be satisfied. Then life wouldn't be scary any longer. That's what fantasy does. It's creating a world with the express purpose of having some desire that you have, some need, some appetite, met. And we need it. We get ourselves into the state of, if I can't have that thing, I can't be okay. Does that feel like something you've ever done? Heighten a desire, kind of boil down an appetite and then go, this thing, I need it so much. And then you imagine how it might be achievable one day or you imagine how it used to be met. The Bible has a term for that. It's called idolatry. Buzzkill. Oh no, I wouldn't ever t- dance around a totem pole. I would never, you know, worship some bronze calf. That's just ridiculous. No, that's just old-fashioned versions of the same thing. It's called idolatry. That there's something that's good that I've now elevated to ultimate And if I can't have that thing, I can't be okay. And God, because he's kind to you, is going to go out of his way to fight your idol and to prove to you how unreliable it is. Let's have a look at how this plays out, right? Now, we've been talking about the story of Exodus, how the Israelites got out of Egypt and went towards the promised land. And all of this is about you. Your life has promises inherent in it. God has made you promises and he wants you to move towards them. So here's Paul talking about how idolatry and the way I've interpreted that, using your imagination and your memory through the lens of your appetites, how that has to do with your journeying towards the promised land. So 1 Corinthians 10. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. You know about this stuff now. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know this amazing stuff that God did. Through the Red Sea, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Paul's making some really interesting theological statements, which we won't get into right now. Here's what I want us to see. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. If I don't deal with the fact that my heart, its default is to create idols. Keeping my kids safe. Keeping my wife happy. Having that experience of whatever pleasure I've decided I like. My heart is hardwired to create idols. If I don't deal with that, if I don't manage that default setting inside my heart, if I don't use my imagination and my memory wisely, I'm gonna allow something to rise up inside me that is good, but I start to worship as if it was ultimate. And that's not gonna stop me getting saved it will stop me inheriting idolatry is not such a big issue for people who aren't already god's people but it always stops god's people inheriting the things god has for them it's a bit of an interesting statement so some of you here may not yet be christians you may be checking out god wondering if he can be trusted if you worship other idols it's not great for you every other idol is a cruel god it will consistently disappoint you but that's it is what it is Christians often think, well, we're out of, out of those woods now. We, we no longer have to worry about that. Christians go, well, now we believe in Jesus, and we worship God, and we come to church, and we sing songs. He saved us. But it wasn't their salvation that was in question. The Israelites had been taken out of Egypt. The Israelites had been freed from oppression. The Israelites were out from under slavery. That wasn't the issue any longer. But their ability to inherit the promises God had for them was what was at stake and they're discovering that actually there were still some other appetites they had and still some other things that they were worshipping, didn't make God reject them. They wouldn't stop being God's people. They didn't suddenly get transported immediately back to Egypt. They were still free from Egypt. They were still God's people, but they didn't inherit the promises. We're going to figure out if that statement's really true. We're going to try and unpack how that looks. So let's look at what they actually did. This roller coaster. they get out of Egypt, they think they would never, ever go back. They can't imagine going back. And then you get to this point where they're actually longing to go back to Egypt. So read with me in Numbers 11. Meanwhile, the rabble among them had a strong craving for other food. And again, the Israelites wept and said, who will feed us meat? So if you've been tracking with us, you know that up until this point, these people get miraculous water out of a rock, which has got to be better than a could even hope to produce, because God produced it. And they get miraculous bread from heaven. Every morning they wake up and bread, bread from heaven is on the, on the ground waiting for them to eat. This is amazing stuff. But they're starting to grumble that it's a little bit samey. And they're quite keen for some sort of nouveau cuisine. We remember, they say, the fish we ate freely in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, mm, leeks, onions, and garlic. And now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to see but this manna, this useless stuff from heaven that God keeps giving us amazingly, miraculously, every morning in the wilderness. Now, this is all nonsense. They were slaves back in Egypt. They weren't eating freely, all of this wonderful stuff. They were slaves. They were being forced by Pharaoh to build, produce twice as many bricks as they could produce in one day, and he wasn't even giving them the raw materials they needed. Life was terrible in Egypt. But their desire for novelty, their appetites have swollen to the point where now they can't remember the past accurately, right? They're looking at the past through the lens of their appetites, and they're going, man, it was so great back then. And they're at the threshold of moving into the promised land. God has taken them through mighty acts into the point. Where they're going to take over the promised land, but they couldn't be bothered to do that because their idol has started to grow inside them. Let's just skip ahead a little, a few chapters. Numbers 14. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? We're not talking about their memories anymore. Now we're talking about their imaginations. Listen to the way they're talking about this promised land they're going to have to go into. They've already played it all out in their minds. They've already filmed the movie in their minds. We're going to go to this battle. We're going to die. Listen to the detail they've come up with. Our wives and our little ones are going to be carried off as plunder. You're the same people that God just took through a sea and defeated the superpower of the day in order to get free. But now it's vivid in their minds. We're going to go there. They're going to hurt us. They're going to do nasty things to our kids. It's like... Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? There it is. Then they plotted amongst themselves, let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Your salvation's not at stake if you don't deal with idolatry. Your inheritance absolutely is at stake if you don't deal with idolatry. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You got me to this point where I'm free from sin. But now everything you actually want me to walk into, this stuff just seems so much more attractive right now. And if you leave that, and if you let your memory and your imagination conspire with that thing, There'll come a point where it's just easier to go back to Egypt. I'd just rather pack it in. What's amazing after this is um, Moses, I mean, Moses, reading about Moses is incredible because you understand stuff about Jesus. He's one of the most amazing foreshadowings or metaphors of what Jesus would be like. And so he appeals to God. He, he defends the people because God is like, well, I've done all this stuff and they still can't trust me or follow me. And so maybe I should just wipe them out, raise up a new nation from somewhere else and do this whole thing again. And Moses appeals to God on their behalf, saying, well, the whole world is watching you. You've announced yourself, God, on the geopolitical stage. You've claimed this nation as your own, and you've removed them out of Egypt. Everyone's watching. The people in Canaan are watching. People in Egypt are watching. Don't show now that you didn't have what it took to get them all the way into their promised land. You are faithful, you are merciful, you are long-suffering, and your love is incredible. And if all this stuff is true, then show that it's true to the world by the fact that you can still work with this nation, even though they're stiff-necked. Just incredible that Moses says that to God on behalf of the people. Can you imagine the heart of a father going, yeah, you've figured out who I am. You've got who I am. Absolutely. And Jesus does the exact same thing on our behalf, right? Appeals to God, because you are loving, because you are merciful, because you are long-suffering, don't give up on this lot, even though they've done nothing to deserve your presence or your care and god goes yeah jesus you know who i am okay fine church come i'll look after you i'll keep working with you despite your ridiculousness so an amazing thing happens throughout the rest of numbers 14 but god because he's just does say well if they're in that state if if their idolatry has gotten out of control like that they can't inherit just yet and it took a whole generation before the israelites could inherit the promised land so how did they get saved, right? Let's just recap this, because remember, this whole thing is a metaphor for us. So 3 p.m. one afternoon, they take an innocent ram. They kill it, and they put its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And then the angel of death sweeps through Egypt, and the angel of death wipes out the firstborn in that God-forsaken nation. But this little crew of slaves who've put their faith in this, the, the sacrifice of this little lamb that didn't deserve to die, or ram, I should say, they paint the blood on the doorpost. Hard to see blood at night, Right? This doesn't seem like a good plan. At night, dark maroon on my doorpost. How on earth is God going to see this? And they're huddling indoors, and the angel of death passed over. And they have screams and pandemonium everywhere else in the land, but they are safe. And then not only do they avoid death, but three days later, from that moment, they're now passing through the Red Sea on dry ground, out of that kingdom once and for all. At 3 p.m. later, on the most horrific day in history, 3 p.m., interestingly, The ultimate ram, who didn't deserve to die, gets killed on a cross for you. And the angel of death passes over you. The death that you deserve, you don't get. And then three days later, interestingly, he rises from the dead and not only allows you to avoid death, but removes you from the kingdom of sin and darkness altogether. And you're now out into a new wilderness. And then just like what happened with the Israelites, he then gives you a new way to live. God had worked with these people, taken them through the Red Sea, takes them into Sinai, and on the back of that incredible act of grace, he says, here's the law. Here's a new way to live. And Jesus, after avoiding death for you, and then removing you from the kingdom of darkness, says, now here's a new way to live. And he writes his laws on your heart. Gives you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. So no one has to say, know the Lord, but you will actually start to desire to know him. That's what happens to you if you give your life to Jesus. And then our great Yeshua, just like Joshua in this story, goes off and leads us into great battles. And we fight big giants and we conquer and defeat them. That's the story that's the salvation message that happened for israel and that's what happens for you and i and yet as we keep saying if we don't manage our imaginations and our memories correctly and we allow our appetites to start to inflame them idolatry can creep up and a good thing that's supposed to be enjoyed becomes the ultimate thing which you start to worship and then there will be a point Just like with with every great hero of faith, there'll come a point where you go, "Yeah, I was listening to that sermon series on repeat at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I was so keen for my spiritual goals. I desperately wanted to get into my inheritance. I wanted to go to the promised land. I hate the idea of slavery and Egypt." But at some point, you just might think of packing it in. So the logical question should be: If I don't want that to happen to me, if I want to know how to get through that moment, no turning back. Praise the Lord, no turning back. How do you kill an idol? I'm so glad you asked. That is the next logical question. Congratulations for getting that right. How do you kill an idol? What what do you do to to kill this thing? You have desires, you have appetites, you can't help that. How do you stop them turning into something that you begin to worship? Well, I suppose the first thing is we just have to figure out that it's there. You have to be able to diagnose what it is. And I certainly couldn't list every single idol or fantasy or appetite that you might have that might start to sneak up on you. But if we look through the story of the Israelites, there might just be a few that could get your juices flowing. So I want you to actually do the hard work now as I talk for the next five minutes about trying to figure out what in you runs the risk of getting a bit too big to the point when then if God was to say, right, here's your inheritance, let's go into the promised land, it might actually cause you to turn back. What do you possibly love too much? If we look at the story of the Israelites, there are a few. The first one, and this may be controversial, I suspect that they've made an idol out of being the victim who had the right to be saved. Knowing you need to be saved is a good thing. Knowing that you are limited is a good thing. And some of you might genuinely, objectively be victims. Something terrible has happened to you. But I think if I look at myself and if I look at these guys, there came a point where it became so... Central to who they are, that, well, we're just the slaves, and God just, you know, took us out of Egypt and took us through the wilderness, and he led us, led us and showed us which way and gave us quail and gave us manna, and we didn't have to do anything, and now he's actually asking us to do something and take responsibility and flex our own muscles, and whoa, 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 whoa I didn't sign up for that. I'm the, I'm the victim. Didn't you see how badly Pharaoh treated us? Didn't you see how, how hard it was? Well, I, I don't deserve to have to take responsibility myself. It would like a huge amount of self-awareness to admit this if it's in you. But I think a lot of us end up in that victim mentality. It's so-and-so's fault. When this happens, then I'll be able to. I think that turns into idolatry for many of us. Comfort and novelty. Remember what they had to say about their diet? Well, we used to get cucumbers and leeks. And it's like, well, now you have bread from heaven. No, but that was, was variety. That was better. I have a tendency towards the novelty, variety, idol, I think. Struggle to just be content with the same. It's good enough today, that means it can be good enough tomorrow. I don't need the new all the time. But if I'm not careful, that desire for novelty and variety can get a little out of control. Maybe you have a bit of that as well. Or the desire for comfort. I mean, you know about what that wilderness was like. It was rough. And comfort can start to turn into an idol. A little closer to home, maybe for all of us, but family. Oh, God, if we go into that battle, what will they do to our wives and kids? Remember them saying that? In this neighborhood, in this suburb, family is a good, godly thing, which very easily, for many of us, can turn into an idol. Oh, God, you're not as responsible with my kid's safety as I am. So if you're calling me to go there, and it looks like it threatens their popularity amongst their mates, sorry, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to get extreme about all this church stuff because I really need to make sure I leave a good legacy for my kids. They need to be financially secure. All good things, which so easily, don't they? Get out of control. And now it's like possibly become an idol in your life. My kid's health, my kid's happiness, my kid's safety, my white picket fence, that's not up for grabs. I've got to have that. If I don't have it yet, then that's the most important agenda on my year, 2019, not anything else that God might have for you. A good thing made the ultimate thing. Reputation. Some uh, interesting archaeological stuff might suggest that the Israelites were shorter than the Canaanites. So the Israelites are looking into the the land of Canaan, and all these guys are tall, and they're all quite short. Cue opportunity for short man syndrome joke. Um, And can you imagine going like, remember how they said they were like giants to us. We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. That's how they said it. That they felt really small compared to these people. Oh, and who wants to go down in history as those bunch of short asses who thought they could take on Canaan and like, it's okay to say that in church, I've just decided. Um, but, but I wonder what our reputation does. It's like, okay, cool, I'll, I'll do stuff, God, if I'm already good at it, if it's, a, if it's a safe bet, if I'm sure that I'll do well. But if you're calling me to do some stuff that I might look like an idiot for trying, oh, I don't know if I can go there. Because my reputation, if I'm honest, has become a bit of an idol. And the truth is, God is definitely going to call you to do stuff you're bad at. What will be the point of calling you to do stuff you're good at? What glory would he get from that? He is definitely going to call you to do stuff that takes you beyond the end of yourself. And if your reputation has become an idol, you will not inherit the promised land. Security and predictability. You know, as terrible as Egypt was, the one thing that you could be sure of in Egypt was what was happening tomorrow. You could make plans. Yeah, you're a slave and it's going to be terrible, but at least you can make plans. You know, three months from now, Pharaoh is still going to be asking you to do the same thing. We in the suburbs love security and predictability, don't we? We love being able to plan. Woe betide anyone who asks you to dinner tonight. Like, come on, I could never have said yes to today. I've I've got a plan. Like, give me some warning and some advance notice. If anyone can accuse you of being irresponsible and you live in Kloof, like your name is mud, right? We're supposed to be responsible people. We're supposed to plan and, and save for the future. And God is going, well, possibly your desire for predictability, which is a good thing, can turn into an idol and stop you inheriting. Here's the final one before we bring this home. If you read through Exodus and Numbers, the experience of the Israelites living in transit with God, there was this fascinating thing going on, right? So that you've got... 2.5 million people moving through the desert, and God had this whole logistical plan, who camps where, who breaks camp in what order, who gets to move first, who moves last. I mean, it's an amazing military operation to get all of them set up camp and then packed up and gone again. And every time they set up camp, in the middle of the camp was the tabernacle, the sort of mobile temple of God, and really interesting rules about who gets to camp near to the t- tabernacle, who must be far from the tabernacle. The Levites could be against the fence of the tabernacle, but if someone else would have even just touch the fence they would die every day offerings had to be made every day you were aware that there is this big inconvenient member of our camping party called God and if you want to be in the presence of God then you're going to have to make space God is quite inconvenient in that way he doesn't wait in line he is not a respecter or fearer of persons if you want the presence of God in your life you don't also get to think that you're God those two ideas are going to fight against one another. And some of the Israelites, like Moses, like Joseph and, I mean Joshua and Caleb, loved the presence of God. Were just so in awe of the idea that the God of the universe would come camping with them. And they couldn't get enough of spending time in His presence. But if you were one of the Israelites who used to labor under the impression that you were actually subtly God of your own life then having this big, inconvenient God in the middle of your camp, demanding sacrifices, demanding space, telling you what to do and when to do it would be very frustrating. If you are laboring under the misconception that you are God of your own life, that sure, maybe you're a victim, all sorts of other stuff, but ultimately the person who's really the star of your story is you, then at some point you and God are going to have a fight. At some point, you're going to start finding him quite inconvenient, quite frustrating, quite annoying, quite costly, because he wants to take up the center part of your life. He wants to be the point. He wants to take up all the space and get all the glory and lead you into all the good things. And if you're not up for that, then Egypt might start looking tempting and the promised land that he has for you, if it means that I don't get to be God, that you actually have to be God, that it's going to cost me all that, that I'm going to have to make all that space in my agenda and my dreams and my plans and my marriage and my way of doing everything and my finances, I'm going to have to make all this space for you. It really forces the issue, doesn't it? Are you God or am I God? And if I'm not so sure about that, and if I've made an idol out of my own agency, my own self-determining, kind of I'm in charge of my own life, we might struggle. So I suppose that's the first thing. Just try and spot whatever idol you have. Then, very quickly as we're coming into land, how do you kill it? Well, the truth is you can't just stop desiring what you desire. Anything that tells you to just white-knuckle and stoically not get your needs met is foolhardy. You'll end up cheating. You'll end up taking cheat days on that diet. You, you won't be able to not get your desires met. So the way to kill an idol is simply to redirect those desires to somewhere where they will reliably get met. This is the process. Whenever you find yourself doing something you don't want to do, you don't just get to kill that desire. You get to go, okay, well, this desire is here. How do I redirect it towards where it's actually supposed to get met? Because every other idol is a cruel God. Every other idol overpromises and underdelivers. And you have a father who's wanting to really satisfy you. So here's how to take control of your memory and your imagination, those faculties that allow you to fantasize and get you into trouble. Think about all the reminiscing you've done over the last few weeks. The ways that you've used your memory, the stuff you've cast back your mind to. The Here's how you need to use your memory. Instead of looking through the lens of some appetite that you've boiled down, simplified, and elevated, those memories are great. They're good. Wonderful stuff happened. You have the ability to use your memory. Use it through this lens the bigness and the goodness of God. The bigness and the goodness of God. That wonderful thing did happen, and my needs were met in that moment, and I did feel safe and satisfied in that moment, not because the moment was so great, but because my big, good God orchestrated that moment, and if he knew how to meet my needs then, he knows how to meet my needs now, he'll know how to meet my needs in the future. Use your memory with the absolute certainty that God is still good and still big, and those great moments don't need to be recreated, Those great moments just give you clues as to how good he really is and he can still be that good today and he can still be that good tomorrow. And you use your imagination through the lens of the promises and instructions of God. That's what he's called me to live like. That's what he said it's gonna look like when I'm in his presence. That's what he's called my life to be about. That sounds amazing. Use your imagination through the stuff God has called you to do and through the ways that he's called you to live and paint a picture around that. I'm gonna give you two very practical examples of what this looks like when a human being does this. When a human being says, okay, Memory, imagination, passions, I'm in charge of you. And now I'm going to redirect you. The Psalms give us this incredible insight into how a human being, just like you or I, can redirect this faculty that they have and not do idolatry, but actually end up moving towards God. Just if you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes. I want to read Psalm 77 to you. And this is talking about memory, how to manage memory in the moment when you are... In despair, where right now feels rubbish and yesterday felt so much better, but it feels so far away. This is what the psalmist says. It won't be on the screen behind me. I just want you to listen. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? But then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High did stretch out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your peoples like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And if the Israelites have mighty deeds to look back on and remember. We get to remember a lamb who was slain for us and three days later pulled us out of slavery once and for all and took us through the wilderness and gave us a new way to live and took us into our promised land and fights our battles on our behalf and sustains us by his rock and by the bread that he, this is our story. I'm gonna ask Milan to come and join me and you can stand now. We're gonna go to the Psalms one more time. And this is about imagination. This is about how to look forward. And um, we're going to say this psalm together. We're going to speak it out. I know you're probably stressing about your kids. They'll be fine. We're going to speak this out over our year. Use your imagination. Let the faculties of your incredible mental machinery work now so that you can paint a picture of the promises and instructions of God as you look forward. This is Psalm 27. I'm going to read it, and you can read along with me if you're brave enough. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. You know, Philippians tells us that the God who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Ross is going to pray, but that is an incredible picture, isn't it? to live towards that, being in the presence of God, being in the house of God all the days of your life. And perhaps we need to make that the most vivid thing we think about all year.